0: Welcome to this week's podcast at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. So we're going to be in the book of Colossians again. Last week I began a brief series in Colossians chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 15 through 20. And the idea here is to move through this text slowly, slowly, deliberately and really take our time to understand what this passage is teaching us about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. This may be one of the best, most concise summaries in the New Testament of who Jesus Christ is. So Colossians chapter 1, uh, 15 through 20. So today we're in verse 16, and, and verse 16 talks about Jesus as the creator. Now pretty much every culture, every society in the history of this world has held some sort of belief in in a divine creator that's behind the creation. This has been the assumption of of many people. However, that idea of a creator is becoming more and more controversial in our world today. In fact, many physicists are are moving away from that idea that there needs to be a, a, a divine origin to the universe and suggesting that maybe the universe could be self-creating, to put it simply or or, or crudely. But I want to challenge that. I want to just ask us to, to slow down and not be too quick to move away from the concept of Jesus Christ as the creator of the world, okay? So I'm assuming Jesus is creator. And we're not going to get into the apologetics or the defense of that today, why that is. But I think there's some very good theological, philosophical, and scientific reasons to believe that Jesus is our creator. So we're assuming this. We're taking this at, at face value today. Colossians 1.16. So go there with me, and we'll, we'll read the passage. For by him, and I'll pause there for a second, him as in Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would guide us this morning in our study of your word, that you would point us to yourself, the creator. Lord, would you open our eyes, open our hearts, would you instruct us, and would you shape us, would you fashion us into true disciples of Jesus Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. So what we want to focus on uh, this morning in this verse is the idea that creation is by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus these are three key terms I want you to observe in this text by Jesus at the very beginning of the verse and then toward the end we see that creation is through him and for him okay so these are words we want to we we want to pay attention to now it's easy to maybe get hung up on terms like heaven and earth visible invisible thrones dominions rulers authorities and these of course are important words in the passage because they communicate something about the areas over which Jesus has lordship. But I want to suggest that because um, they, they, these, these terms um, are, are referring here to this kind of idea of, of what Jesus has dominion over, they can kind of be grouped together in a way. Uh, they should be taken in the sense of, okay, wherever you look, wherever you look, side to side, up, down, back, forth, where, wherever you look, Jesus has dominion. Jesus has lordship over these things. Whether you open your eyes or close them, if you can see it, if you can imagine it, if it's real, if it's real, Jesus made it. Jesus owns it. It's his. So that's the intent of this verse. For him, by him, through him. All of these things belong to Jesus Christ. He owns creation. He calls the shots, He organizes, he structures the world according to the will of the Father. We are stewards of his creation. And that idea shows up in in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God creates man and and his wife, Adam and Eve, and puts them in the garden to steward his creation, to be gardeners within his creation. And and we'll come back to that idea here in a little bit, but that's an important concept. I was thinking of, of Psalm 8 as well. We could go there for a moment. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And then skipping down to verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So Psalm 8 is pointing to the majesty of the creator, but also elevating man as, as, as steward of creation. He's given us authority over creation. But we want to keep these things in in perspective. Think of it this way. Imagine a scenario, if you will. Imagine you're a little bit strapped for cash. You need to make some extra money, and so you decide to go get a part-time job. And you notice that Moretti's Italian restaurant is hiring dishwashers. And so you go and, and talk to Mr. Moretti, and, and he hires you to wash dishes in his restaurant, and, and soon you've learned how to, how to run the, the, the dishwashing machines and all of this stuff, and you've gotten quite proficient at it, and you start learning other skills in the restaurant. And soon you're waiting tables, and you're managing people, and you're, you're doing all of these different activities. And then one day, uh, one of the cooks calls in sick, and isn't able to, to come in and, and work. And so Mr. Moretti hands you an apron and takes you back into the kitchen, and he shows you his, his grandmother's recipe book, and you start to make all of these foods, lasagna and pizza and all of these things, right? And so you're, you're, you're now proficient at cooking, and you've learned the entire restaurant business. You, you know it from, from start to finish, top to bottom. You understand how this restaurant works. And so Mr. Moretti decides, okay, well, you're running his restaurant just fine he can go take his his vacation and maybe go to sicily and visit his family that he hasn't seen in years and so he leaves you in charge of the restaurant and things are going quite well at uh moretti's italian restaurant and you're making money and things are are good but then you you realize that maybe you could add some things to the to the menu and you realize tacos sell quite well so you Introduce tacos onto the Italian restaurant menu. And the tacos are selling well, and you're making more money, and so you start adding other things to the menu, maybe um, fajitas and other Mexican food. And pretty soon, you realize the Mexican food is selling better than the, the Italian food. And so you remove all of those Italian recipes from, from your menu. And you even go out in front of the, 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 the restaurant and change the sign from Moretti's Italian restaurant to Moretti's Mexican restaurant. Now, one day, Mr. Moretti's Fiat pulls into the parking lot, right? And he walks in. What, what do you think... Mr. Moretti is going to say when he sees what you've done to his restaurant. You've desecrated everything he's built, right? You've thrown out his grandmother's Italian cookbook that was handed down to him. You've changed everything he worked so hard to build. What do you think is going to happen? Now, clearly, Mr. Moretti is not going to be very pleased with what he sees, and the whole point of this is it's not your restaurant, right? It's not yours to change. You don't own it. It's not yours to decide. And in the same way, Jesus is Lord over creation, all of it heaven, earth, visible, invisible, rulers, authorities, powers, dominions. Jesus is Lord, it's His. We don't get to change the plan. We don't get to run the show. We don't get to choose how he restores it, how he sustains it, how he judges it, or anything else for that matter. He made it. Our job is to believe him, to believe Jesus, to obey Jesus, to preach Jesus, to worship Jesus. He created it. He died for it. He plans to restore it. It's his. I love this quote by Abraham Kipper. Uh, He said one time, and you've probably heard this uh, before, it's a famous quote, but there's not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It belongs to Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is Lord of creation, I want to suggest three things that naturally emerge from this notion that we see in the text. And the first is this, if Jesus owns creation, if Jesus is Lord over all creation, we should recognize the goodness and the beauty and the truth in creation, but we shouldn't worship the goodness, the beauty, and the truth of creation. In other words, the creation points to the creator. All right? Creation points to the creator. So Colossians 1.16 is about teleology or or telos is the Greek term. And that simply means the purpose, the end, the function. What does it point to? And that is to glorify God. The world was made by Jesus for Jesus. It glorifies him. It points us to him. Its purpose and its function is to draw the eye to him, to the creator. Now, sadly, many people appreciate the goodness and the beauty and the truth in creation, and yet fail to see the goodness and beauty and truth of the Creator. And we are all guilty of this at times. And we live in a beautiful place. And it's easy to look to the mountains, and, but to conflate things a little bit. We, we become a functional pantheists. We conflate creation with Creator. God as creation, creation as God, rather than allowing his creation to point us, to, to direct our eye to him. We look to the mountains, we see their beauty. I would encourage us, look, look farther. So we look to the sky and we see the beauty of the sunset and the clouds and the lightning and the snow and the things that we enjoy looking at. Again, I would urge you, look farther. Look farther. And so we look through our telescope and we look into the vastness of space and we see these beautiful images billions of light years away. But again, I want to urge you, look farther. Somewhere behind all of it is Jesus Christ, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things are made. If we don't see the hand of God in the world, it might be that we've not really seen the world for what it is. We need to look beyond the object. And that's the idea here in Colossians 1.16. Now, it was my birthday this, this last weekend and my family made me a beautiful, well, thank you, yes. <laughs> my family made me this beautiful 12-layer chocolate cake. Wow. Terrific, yes, wonderful cake. It looked like a big stack of pancakes. It was <laughs> wonderful. And um, I think they realized I wasn't getting enough sugar in my diet, so they (laughs) wanted to help me with that. So they made me this cake, they got me a nice gift, they got me this really cool effects pedal for my electric guitar, and it was a great birthday, I got these nice things. But the problem is, if I'm not able to look beyond the object, beyond the cake, beyond the festivities, beyond the, the gifts, to the people behind it, then clearly I have a problem. Right? It's, it's not about the things, it's about the people. And in the same way, when we look at creation, again, the eye needs to be drawn to the thing behind it, Jesus Christ, right? We need to see the reality behind the reality. So we see the good in creation, but we worship the God behind creation. That's the first thing. But the second thing, and this is the other side of the coin, Okay, sometimes we look out and we see the bad in the world. We see the fallenness and the brokenness and the sin in the world. And, and then what we end up doing is despising the world. We don't want to do this either. Right? Creation is broken, creation is fallen. It's ugly at times. Christians can be tempted to think that since the world is fallen, our situation is hopeless. The world is going to hell, right? It, There's no no use, there's no point in any of it. Just hunker down and wait for Jesus to return and let it burn. That's not the right attitude toward creation. We don't want to forget that the same Jesus who made something so grand and so beautiful as the world also loves something so bad and so depraved as the world. He's working toward a final restoration of the world. So the lordship of Jesus over creation should actually encourage us to engage with this broken and fallen creation the way that Jesus engaged with it. Our holy God, he he doesn't delight in the sinful or the ugly or the marred or the unholy things, yet he also came to live in the sinful and the ugly and the marred and the unholy things to live among us out of love for the lost, right? He got his hands dirty in this world, and so should we. Imagine a scenario. Imagine the world as a barn filled with manure, but in this manure are all kinds of precious objects, gold and and diamonds and works of art and things of that nature. Now, a little bit about me, uh, my past. I grew up in a rural area, and my very first job, my very first paid job was working on a farm, milking cows at my grandfather's farm, Um, feeding the the cattle, the livestock, baling hay, doing all of that kind of farm type of stuff. Uh, I loved working with the animals, but one thing I hated doing was cleaning the barn. Now, when I say cleaning the barn, I don't mean taking some all-purpose cleaner and a a paper towel and wiping spots. I mean pitchforks and shovels and wheelbarrows and moving knee-deep manure outside into the, the, the barnyard. Cleaning out pens, cleaning out gutters. It was arduous work, smelly work, dirty work. So imagine you're cleaning the barn when suddenly you notice a, a diamond ring sticking out of the muck. And, and you look a little closer, and next to that ring, you find a gold, a gold statue sticking up out of the, 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 the crud. And further examination reveals the corner of a famous Rembrandt painting sticking out of the manure as well. And soon you realize that in the heaps of manure are literally thousands of precious objects. And with this realization, your approach to cleaning the barn needs to change, right? You've got to throw down the the pitchfork and throw down the shovel, and you've got to go in there and get your hands dirty. And carefully remove these precious objects and carefully clean them and restore them. Okay, that's, that's the idea. And see, too often, our response to the world is, is like cleaning a barn. To hell with it. It's all going to burn anyway. Shovel it out, move it out, get it out of the way. That kind of thing. But if creation is by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, then our response to God's creation should be the careful and thoughtful and loving removal of lost souls, precious souls, through the the, the announcement of the gospel, right? This means loving, patient proclamation of the love of God for the people of this world. So again, don't withdraw The idea is engage, right? Get your hands dirty. Don't withdraw. Look around. Who needs our attention? Who needs our time? Who needs our love? Who needs our invitation? I love this quote by the late Tim Keller. The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. That's the world. That's the world, that's us. Jesus loves something so bad as the world. Okay, when you think of John 3.16, we know the verse, God so loved the world, not just something so big as the world, something so bad as the world that he gave his one and only son. So let's join in this restoration of creation. So finally, if Jesus owns creation, then let's steward God's creation that he gave us. I referenced Genesis 1 and 2 uh, previously. I want to go back there again. Genesis 1 and 2 says that God placed the man and his wife in the garden to cultivate the garden, to cultivate the plants, the things that he had made. Now, cultivating creation today, we see that around us when we mow our lawn. Um, I was up on 103 uh, recently driving up the road and noticed all this, this work that... Forest Service is doing cutting down old trees. That's cultivation of creation, restoring things, cleaning things, making the habitat better for for flourishing of human and animal life. That's part of what we mean by cultivating. But cultivating is more than that. Cultivating creation doesn't just mean growing crops and planting gardens. It means cultivating people, cultivating society, cultivating culture, okay? So that's something to, to bear in mind. Um, Cultivating doesn't mean name-calling on social media, it doesn't mean letting the world know what we're against and what we hate all the time. It means actually constructing something good, something true, something beautiful in the place of the bad and the false and the ugly. In other words, the church has an opportunity to offer a better story. Right? A a better reality, better methods than what the world is offering. And there are many examples of this. You You could talk about the education system. When you see it suffering, work with the community to offer better alternatives, right? When media is saturated with ugliness and agendas and vitriol, create something better. When politics offers us the choice between two evils, as Charles Spurgeon once said, choose neither sometimes. Um, we can do more. We can do better to cultivate this world God has given us. So think of it this way. If you're planning to restore or develop an area of a city or a city in general, you don't just tear down a few random buildings and, and then rebuild an eclectic spattering of new structures intermingled with the old and the ugly and the dilapidated, right? You, you, you've got to do some serious rethinking of the entire infrastructure, of the architectural style, of the building needs, of their functionality, of their purpose, and so forth. You have to plan. You want to work with intention. I've got a photo here of, of Paris. I think we've got it. Um, yeah, so this is the, the, the Hostman project in Paris. And you can see it was designed with intentionality. It kind of looks a bit chaotic maybe from the sky, but the wide boulevards, the Champs Elysees is there and other boulevards, it was intentional. It was designed with purpose. That's why it's called a plan, right, a city plan. And I want to suggest that we might be spending too much time sometimes putting out cultural fires, getting angry about offenses to our religious sensibilities rather than going in with a gospel plan that has Christ at the center right we might be spending too much time ignorantly responding to issues in unwinsome ways without understanding the nuance of the issue and maybe the people behind the issue we might be doing sometimes more harm than good this is why we need a robust understanding of the gospel a robust understanding of God's word, a robust theology of mission that recognizes the lordship of Jesus Christ and the mission of Jesus Christ. See, the goal is not just to win a kind of culture war or chase nostalgic notions of, of a better time, a more Christian time. What do we have to work with today? What is our situation today? See, the goal is to love and glorify Christ through gospel proclamation and through patient, consistent love for those within our sphere of influence. If Jesus owns all of creation, visible and invisible, heaven and earth, thrones, dominions, powers, authorities, all of this stuff, if, if he owns it, how then should we posture ourselves in this creation? And again, we posture ourselves in the gospel. Believe in Jesus, trust Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, obey Jesus, proclaim Jesus. Not fear, not anxiety, trust in him, hope, proactive discipleship, walking with him. So in order to live well in this creation by him, through him, for him, we need to get good at being with him. We need to get better at being with him. See, Jesus paid a very high price to redeem and restore his creation. His ultimate plan, you go to Revelation, the end of the Bible, the new heavens, the new earth, restoration, right? He will judge those who reject him, judge the wicked. Satan, his minions, will be thrown into the lake of fire. But what we see is restoration of his church, of his people, of his earth, right? That's the idea. So we become participants in that restoration project when we place our faith in Jesus Christ and we walk with him in obedience. We become participants in the restoration project when we receive the grace of God and when we proclaim and live the grace of God. Now, one of the ways we proclaim God's grace today is through our celebration of communion. And I want to invite you all, if you've not yet picked up the communion elements to please do so. We're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper, this proclamation of what Christ has done. We proclaim the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ at the cross. So I wanna take you uh, briefly to the book of Hebrews, which explains this quite well, what this is about. Jesus, our high priest, Jesus, our atoning sacrifice, In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, when Jesus appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, skipping down to verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that blood purify our conscience from dead works to serving the living God? Communion is our opportunity to proclaim to one another our faith in Jesus Christ. This is a public profession that we have said yes to Jesus, that we acknowledge him as our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. So I want to invite you, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have put your faith in him, to to join me in taking communion. This is for God's people, for his church. So on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant. This is poured out, poured out for many the of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder that we have a creator. All creation points to the creator. Lord, I pray that we would live well within this creation, your children, as servants of the Most High God, as proclaimers of the truth of the gospel. Lord, would you give us courage to stand in that truth and to follow what you called us to do, the Great Commission, to make disciples, to baptize the nations. Lord, would you help us to have a healthy view of the people and the creation around us? Would you guide us in this, Lord? Amen.